This is Justin. We are back with episode two, Pwned season three. Here again with Jack, su- supervised by by Holly, keep, keeping us on the straight. Um, Jack, we're going to do the season three first breach of the week, which is a which is a, a little bit of a yellow and maybe a crystal ball of stuff to come, but. Um, how we could talk about the, the the log 4J. So we don't we don't have a specific breach mm-hmm. to talk about, but talk about maybe like the precursor, of the promise of a breach, Justin. The, the promise of <laughs> uh, what what could be. So and will will likely be. I'm sure I'm sure we'll see something come out of it, even though like I haven't heard of anything yet. So, um, so log 4J announced uh, I don't know, a couple, couple weeks back at this yeah, point, like about two the, weeks the, ago, uh, yeah. actually like December timeframe, right? Which was yep. the exact same time that the solar wind stuff happened in the year previous. So it's a like, giving season, Justin, a giving season. It's just like, it's just like the end of the year dumpster fire where everybody saves up all like their exploits and known vulnerabilities and releases them right before the holiday season so that anybody in cyber cannot actually enjoy the holidays because they're freaking the frick out that <laughs> they're about to get pwned for holidays. Nice. Nice. It's beginning yeah. to look a lot like Christmas. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just not, uh, it's not, not Santa showing up. Just be like, Hey, this is uh, just sit still. It's just going to pinch for a second. And we're, <laughs> and we're there. <laughs> Jack, how do you how, how do you feel about log four J? I'm frankly like I'm not I'm not not super like I'm just tired of it. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Let's face it, right? Here, here's a news flash, right? Hey, there's vulnerable software. Woohoo! Yeah, that's a shock. No, right. So, <laughs> the thing about it for me that that I think is interesting, right? Because people are now, and I, I like the words people are using, right? They're talking about this is this is an opportunity to reevaluate, right? The the sanctity of supply chain. Because right? to me, this kind of stuff can happen all the time. Today, it's log4j. It's important because that's infrastructure that a lot of people take advantage of, right? It's, it is it is uh, capabilities that a lot of firms who do other good work really rely on, right? It gets built into what they do. But it's not that different from like uh, the bank that's using a piece of accounting software, um, the retail shop who's using some front-end software, point of sale at a restaurant. You know, everybody's got software that they care about that they have absolutely no idea right? What's going on inside. And you hope for the best, right? You got a lot of really good people working really hard to make secure software, but mistakes happen all the time, right? So for me, Log4J, I'm glad we're talking about it just a little bit. Because what I think what we might do is light people up a little bit to say, all right, I'm going to accept the reality that even really good software from people I trust and from groups that I trust who appear to be well motivated might have problems inside it. So assuming that's going to happen, what am I going to do about it? Right. So how do I manage my life a little bit differently? So when the, the thing does happen, as you mentioned, when the thing does happen three days before the holidays or whatever, um, I'm not going to be staying up all night because I will have thought about it in advance. I'll say, you know, there's no one piece of my infrastructure that if it suddenly turns out it's got a big hole in it is going to drive me to my knees because I've thought a little bit about it the same way a business thinks about what do I do if a certain delivery you know, vehicle isn't available? What do I do? If my connectivity provider goes down, do I have redundant connectivity? You know, treat that possibility 
for a vulnerability inside your supply chain is something you can manage that you you admit that you understand could exist and you don't just still wave your hands over it. You admit it could exist. And this is what you tell your teams and your bosses and, and the people who work with you. You'll do if the bad thing happens. I think it raises that conversation in a non-threatening way for people. Jack, let me let me ask you this. And I realize like you might, there's not a perfect answer, even though your answer that you give is probably going to be perfect. But <laughs> let, me just, uh, let me just put that. Um, so in the course of our business, right, we see this stuff day in and day out, right? Like the companies that we work with, um, we are helping them work through and navigate the security of their own piece of the software that might be used in the supply chain, right? Like that's, so mm -hmm. we do, right? Um, and it is, it would be extremely rare. Like I can think of one or two cases out of 75, 80 applications where we just say, you know, from the beginning, we're like, hey, this actually looks pretty good. That's mm -hmm. like, it's like two, two, two out of eight. Like, I don't know what percentage that works out to be, but it's like, that's, there's not very many that are actually, let's say, like fairly buttoned up and they know what they're doing. So that means like, there's all these apps out there that we see all the time that we know are broken. And, but I know that's, that's an inference on like the rest of the application population. And, you know, you apply those same stats across the, you know, national population of apps, it's reasonable to think like there's, there's more holes everywhere, right? So like taking log4j, for example, like, let's just say hypothetically, like people did know that there was, there's a hole in the software platform, but there's like, there's like three or four people like managing the log4j stack, like developing it so that it can be used elsewhere. In those cases, like in your opinion, like what, what would a company do of saying we have an app that relies on log4j or something else we've identified that to be vulnerable and let's just say that organization that small organization doesn't know about it but is just learning about it for the first time like what's like what what recourse do you think businesses actually have right yeah yeah you know, I mean, like, I, what, 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 what do you do it, and it depends on sort of how they're using it, right? It depends on where it gets placed because you're 100% right. Um, you know, in the the years when we built up um, Ounce, the, the app scan stuff inside IBM now, right, we always found vulnerabilities in almost everything we looked at. Good people write good software. They plug two pieces together and they accidentally connect wrong, right? And so two good pieces of software plug together create a hole. So oh, there's a hole. Wait, Jack. Pause. Fun fact for everybody listening. Jack, former CEO of Bounce Labs and founder of Bounce Labs. Yes. Yeah. So I just, like, I, I just feel like the light shine on. I was like, oh, that's the material fact that you've actually got your stuff together. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think the most important part of that, that, that particular period of my life was you realize that how really smart people can make mistakes, right? And how they rely on things that they trust to be secure that aren't necessarily going to be that way. And so, even when you have the perfect practices, you can still find things that are vulnerable. But but to your question, right, what does that smaller organization do or that underfunded organization or that really busy organization do, you know, as this thing comes to light? You know, I, I think that part of the the issue here is understanding a little bit better the ecosystem that's that's providing support for the things that we use. 
right? I mean, Log4j is super popular. I mean, it's, it's really good stuff that a lot of people use. And I think, I know I was very surprised to find out how sort of undermanned the team was that was doing Yeoman's work to keep that thing up and running, right? And I think that had the vulnerability been known or that if people were more aware that the vulnerabilities like that could exist, it might cause them to do a little bit more inspection as they're making their choice. Maybe they want to apply some additional funding to Log4j so they feel like it's better supported. You know, maybe they want to create a requirement to use it in their own organizations that leads the organization to support organizations like this, which, you know, on, on the sweat of their brow are trying to support these technologies, you know, that are out there and that are really popular. We see a lot of this, you know, in really popular open source platforms, right, that end up finding their way all over the place and where this kind of problem once discovered can really have a pervasive knock-on effect throughout. So what does that organization do? You know, by the, by the time it happens, right, then they have to get, you know, and I think this is hard, they have to get really smart really quickly on what the specifics of the vulnerability will mean to them, right? What will the exercise or the exploit of that vulnerability mean inside their environment? And can they disable the things that it touches in such a way that they prevent themselves from being sort of further damaged by it in places outside that immediate, you know, activity inside the supply chain. You know, I, I think it's hard because in, in the case of Log4j, you've got organizations which rely on software that relies on Log4j, right? So even in this case, they're an arm's length at least away from the actual vulnerability themselves. And I guess, you know, for me, I think one of the reasons I, I, I think this is a good topic to talk about and just using, you know, Log4j as a foil is that as an industry, we sort of push on people, understand your vulnerabilities and then go patch, 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 right? And it's, it's one of the funniest things to go to RSA or to go to one of the security conferences and have, you know, a lot of the folks there who've been around for a while saying, if people would just patch, this whole problem would go away, right? As though somehow patching a system that you rely on for the core of your business during the holiday season is somehow easy, right? <laughs> or that updating a piece of software that 30 other pieces of software you don't own anymore rely on is somehow easy. It's not, it's super hard. Um, but until we as an industry acknowledge that everything is possibly vulnerable and make that relationship one of mitigating controls and not always just hammering people because they didn't patch something that was impossible to patch for them in a short period of time. Or I, I you, think we'll keep- Or you didn't know about it yesterday. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and, and, and who budgets for that, right? So, you know, for, for me, the, 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 a great reason to have this discussion now is to raise people's awareness that, you know, anything they're using may end up, in fact, at some point in time being found to be vulnerable and see if you can't think in advance of ways to protect it, right, from, you know, extraneous traffic or unnecessary traffic or random traffic or the broad internet or think about as it's doing its thing, what can't it get to on the outside? Think a little bit more compartmentalized. You know, the beauty and democratization of a flat network sounds great, right? But a balkanized network, you know, can solve a world of hurt if, you know, problematic infrastructures and problematic services can't spread as easily. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, they, um, the, the reason I, the, the reason for the, the question that I asked earlier was, um, you know, this situation makes me think of, you know, the broader supply chain issue that exists within state government, or I'd say mm -hmm. all, all governments, really. And so, you know, the, the governments that we work with, um, you know, same about all of their vendors who provide a service or a technology for the state that is inherently 
weak from a cyber standpoint, riddled with holes in, generally speaking, a state government, for example, would have limited recourse to go after said vendor to mm -hmm. actually fix those issues, right? And so, you know, and on the surface, you say like, hey, it shouldn't really be that hard and the state should be able to reach out and, you know, kind of force the vendor to do it. But it's like you said, like, it's not that easy to fix some of this stuff, right? And it's saying, you know, keeping in mind that in most cases, like the RFP process that the state just went through over the last year or 18 months to get the vendor on board, mm -hmm. right? And um, is, is long. And to replace them is also going to take a really long time. And to couple the fact that um, states are, a lot of states are governed by labor unions, right? And there's, um, you know, budget issues that might prohibit like staff from working on fixing some of this stuff or there's, I guess I'm just going on and say like, there's a whole litany of reasons like why a state can't turn on a dime to fix some of these things. But, right. um, but I think about this tangentially related to like the broader issue that we kind of see in state government is like, there's, there's a limited recourse, like recourse that, um, these organizations have to fix some of these stuff. But to your point, to me, the answer seems to be for right now is um, mitigation and compensating controls, right? An example could be like a web application firewall, right? Mm -hmm. I'm saying like, as long as you are aware, you can see it, you can, you can kind of see the train before it hits you, so to speak, right? right yeah. you, you make some adjustments, right? And you know, and you know, it's what like a web application firewall, a WAF is like they're not super expensive. Like if you're if you're able to afford some of these applications, you're also able to afford a WAF. And like it doesn't doesn't have to be all the bells and whistles. Like you can buy something fairly inexpensively that can still get the job done. And uh, you know what? Uh you put a signature in to block that specific attack path. Once you have time to patch or someone has time to remediate, you go back in, you take that signature out to main the operational hygiene of the WAF, right? And you just keep going, right? And that's right on. That's the process that, that you go through, right? Yeah, and, and, and if I use your example of the RFP, which is a great one, think about the, some of the bespoke stuff that happens in terms of software to support states, right? They're all very different from one another, right? They have different priorities, they're running different internal systems. So a lot of times some of the software that they're contracting for is very specific to them. And so there isn't even like the traditional patch mechanisms and recourse. You're going to have to go back and say, you know, change that whole thing around. And so you need exactly what you just described, which is a mitigating control of relative straightforward implementation of indeterminate duration, right? It's going to be there for a little while until you can figure out that back end, as opposed to having your hair on fire, right? With, with nowhere to go because there is no mitigating, you know, bulwark between you and, and that, uh, you know, the, the offending system. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Let me ask you, right? Because you were running a successful business during 17, right? When WannaCry blew up, right? So WannaCry blows up because there's a known and patchable vulnerability that people just haven't had time to patch, right? And you talk about supply chain, you know, Microsoft is everywhere, right? I mean, how, how did these organizations react to something like that? You know, somewhere that even if they had recourse, it's just so everywhere, it's so endemic. 
You know, how did how did you help him through it? You know, in in that case, in in other cases, um, for us, it was really about trying to drive awareness of risk, right? And actually, like, kind of going back to like the XDR. Fuck. Oh. oh. <laughs> I can't believe I just did that. So, For those of you who may have missed episode one, Justin has just stepped in it and used a term from the pit of despair. The aforementioned, in quotes, XDR is one of the forbidden terms. And now Justin owes us a shot. Back to what you were saying, Justin. Oh, that's all I just erased my brain. <laughs> oh. Dang it. I can't believe that. Anyway. In the last conversation for extended detection and response, right? <laughs> um, be, because we've been able to build out security operations center that can look into more than just traditional infrastructure, and we can look into various types of app stacks in like in um, like diverse different types of technologies. I mean, we we can literally ingest any type of machine data and, and, and run correlations on it. Um, you know, in the case of, you know, you know, all of these things, it's been, for us, it's been a situation of trying to drive awareness for our clients, right? And because like, the question always comes up and say, hey, like, this is out in the news, like, are we impacted by it? Like, is there right. something we should be worried about? Like, does, does that vulnerability exist? Or does that jar file exist within our environment, right? And that's that's always the first question that comes up. And so for us, like, that's what we do, right? We're able to look across, you know, entire organizations and say, hey, like, we see it there, we see it here, or you don't have it at all, right? Hmm. And in those cases, the same comes back to like the train analogy, right? It's saying like, if you can see the train coming, you know that you have the risk, like, it's often enough time to put mitigating controls in place. And so for us, not only do we have the ability to to do that initial detection. Um, we also have the resources and capabilities internally to say, okay, here's a good compensating control, right? Like yeah. we have the assurances team and the risk professionals on staff to also say, you know, here's, here's how you might prevent that from happening, right? Or here's a piece of technology that you should really strongly look hard at, um, like a web application firewall or, you know, or, Know, maybe it's uh, enabling a certain module within a technology that you already have, or it's you know putting in a signature set into like an already existing firewall that you've got in mm. place, right? To basically put that block in place so that someone do does try to hack at it, you know, and they try to hammer away at it, it's, it's going to hit that block rule, right? And it's just, and really, it's it's just about buying enough time until you can get it fixed, so you can get it patched, or even better yet someone gets frustrated enough and they go down the street to the next person. Right. Not, not that I'd wish that on someone else, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Right. Right on. You, yeah. It's, it's so I like it. Right. Because we talk breach of the week. Right. And we want to come out the back end of it with a lesson. Right. That, that we all learn from it. Right. And what I'm hearing the lesson today, and it's a pretty pithy one is make sure you're set up. So you'll see the train coming. Yeah. Right. That, that make sure that you've got mechanisms in place so that, if this happens again or something like this happens again, or again, one of these more pervasive ones that we've talked about happens again, that you're set, you've set yourself up so you can give yourself some distance between yourself and the train. 
or in the case of them going down the street between yourself and the bear um, so that, 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 that somebody else ends up picking it up. And I think that that's great advice, right? That's a great lesson out of Log4j as opposed to don't trust this or don't trust this or don't use that. Instead, just say, realize that this stuff just happens. Whether you're the biggest software company in the world, the three really hardworking folks on Log4j, stuff happens all the time. Set yourself up so you can put some distance between yourself and the damage that it can cause. Remember, find a way to see the train coming. I think it's great advice. Yeah. Um, okay, so come back to Breach of the Week, Jack. Crystal Ball, what do you, uh, what do you foresee happening to the industry? or organizations within the industry related to this vulnerability? You know, I'd, I'd like to see an, uh, an upswell in investment, right? I mean, it, the, the, the ecosystem that supports an organization that can drive out a, a piece of technology like Log4j that people find so valuable, it should be supported more, right? There's a lot of people who are taking funding for value propositions which have a lot less demonstrated success, right? So I'd like to see some of the people who are taking advantage of it maybe come up with a different kind of ecosystem that supports a better view of security into some of these uh, some of these capabilities, which haven't necessarily been viewed through a security lens as deeply as maybe they could be. But let's not blame them for not having done it because nobody paid them to do it. Let's find a way to support them getting it done. Yeah, that's solid. I like it. So in other words, putting into my own words, see some of the mega funding going to the people that need it and doing really good within the industry versus the closet flash in the pan that's going to be outpaced in the next six months. Right on, right on. It, 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 <laughs> you know, you and I talk about this all the time. And again, this will be another subject for perhaps a later episode, but we talk Jack, a lot about one, the- it, This one needs to be after, after we catch up on all the shots the penalty shots, right? Yeah, the, the penalty shots. So that way I can, uh, I, I, can, I can let my guard down and say all the stuff that I shouldn't say. Yeah, from, a, from a purely objective, like third party on top of Mount Olympus viewpoint, like looking down at the world, right? If I was to take the probably three or $400 billion that have been invested in cybersecurity over the course of the last 12 to 24 months, if I were to take one one hundredth of 1% of it and give it to hardworking people working on Log4j to make it more secure, it would have had a more beneficial impact on the overarching security posture of our industry than will any of the rest of the investments. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure the Mother Teresa of cybersecurity would have voted, would vote the same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. All right. Jack, this has been great. Always a blast, uh, Justin. Yep. All right. So again, Justin and Jack uh, on Pwned. Um, thank you for New Harbor Security for sponsoring this episode, like all episodes. Uh, if there's anything we can do to help out with your cybersecurity initiatives or just need some help or you want to talk about uh, words in the pit of despair so you can do shots, happy to do that too. You can reach us at phone at newharborsecurity.com uh, or you can reach us at uh, info at newharborsecurity.com. Um, thanks and uh, we'll catch you next episode. <laughs>